it cannot have escaped your attention that as we look all around us in our culture and our society today, that there are things that we once took for granted that are being eroded and redefined. And oftentimes we find ourselves grieving as we look at some of what we see out there. You know, as I travel from place to place, uh, I have the privilege of serving the Lord in a capacity where I travel to different regions around the world. I, I hate bugs. And one of the things that I have discovered is that bugs exist wherever you go. But the worst thing is when a bug gets inside. So in some of the places I go, I have to sleep under a mosquito net. And the whole idea is that those bugs that are out there, they stay out there. I don't like them when they're out there, but I definitely don't want them in here. And despite having a mosquito net, there is nothing worse than trying to get to sleep and hearing, and it's like, it's coming for me. It's going to eat me while I sleep. And I have a hard time getting off to sleep. Why? Because, because that thing that I don't like out there is in here. You know, we need to understand that the church of Jesus Christ has always faced a great challenge that is not so much about what is going on in the culture and the attitude, which it seems in our day is becoming increasingly like an anything-goes value. The church of Jesus Christ has always had to understand that, that our great concern is not so much about what is going on outside of the doors of the church, because you know what? People who are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ live like people who are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That shouldn't surprise us. And as Pastor Matt has talked about in recent weeks, what we find here in God's Word is not so much aimed at making the kingdom out there look so much different as it is by starting off with the kingdom of God's people. And we're going to take some time over these next three weeks to study together through the New Testament letter of Jude. And this letter is all about the challenge that the church of Jesus Christ faces in every generation when the anything-goes value of the culture begins to seep into the church and becomes subtly something that takes root in our midst. So we're calling this series Contend, and you'll see the reason for that in just a moment, but I want to invite you this morning to go ahead and grab your copy of the Scriptures, whether that be a, a book or, or, or on the app, because you're going to want to follow along. If you don't have that with you this morning, 
Make sure that you bring a, a copy of the Scriptures with you next week because one of the things that we're going to discuss is that it's not about what you hear me say. It's about checking that what I'm saying is what this says. So, let's look together. The New Testament letter to Jude. Jude is uh, quite easy to find if you're looking for it. Uh, If you find the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, Jude comes immediately before Revelation. It is actually easy to to, to skip past it as you're flicking through the pages because it's very short. In fact, it's, it's only one chapter. It has just 25 verses in it. And so over these next three weeks, we're going to be walking verse by verse through this entire book together. But today, as we begin with verses 1 through 4, let's see what God's Word has to say to us about how we as true believers are to respond when the anything-goes attitude of the world around us begins to creep into the church. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Well, it's helpful if we uh, actually stop there and get our our, our grounding a little bit. So uh, Jude is introducing himself. This is a letter, as is common in the New Testament letters. He begins with an introduction of who he is, and he identifies himself in two different ways. First of all, he says, I am a a servant, or actually better still, a a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is uh, uh, in humble recognition of his right and proper status before the Lord. And then he identifies himself as well as being the brother of James. Now, this James that he's talking about was James who was a key leader for the church in Jerusalem. We read about him a little bit with the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. This is the same James who wrote the the book of James that we find in the New Testament. And what we know about this James, according to to, uh, Matthew 13 and a couple of other passages, is that he was actually the half-brother of Jesus. And, and so, uh, Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but then we've got James and the rest of the siblings who were born of Mary and of Joseph and grew up together with Jesus. And so I think that this is actually very interesting because, you see, Jude says, I'm the brother of James, which also means he's actually the brother of Jesus. Now, I I don't know about you, but if I was the brother of Jesus, I would play that card. I I, got to tell you, I, I would. But he starts here as he writes to these people who he's burdened for as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he reminds them that even despite that connection that ultimately, that just like all of us, he is but a slave, but a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he writes, it says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. 
So he starts off this letter by, by explaining that, that those who are true believers are established in their glorious identity in Christ. And I love the fact that he, he uses this, this couplet of three terms here. In fact, all through the book of Jude, uh, Jude likes threes. He, he piles terms on each other in groups of threes. And the first one here in the book is this. As he writes, we don't know exactly who these people are. We know that they're believers. We don't know exactly where they are. This is referred to as one of the general epistles, which basically means uh, we've got a general idea of who he's writing to, but we don't know for sure. It's to believers kind of everywhere, to those who are called. Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. He reminds us of the fact that to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we have this glorious identity in him. And the first truth that he wants to remind his readers and us today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is that you are a called out one. Uh, the, the God of the universe, the one who made the heavens and the earth, he calls to himself his people. Salvation is, is really the, the calling of God as he woos and draws a people to him, as the Spirit of God regenerates the heart of the unbeliever so that they are able to respond to that glorious call, that announcement of the gospel. But not only are, are, are true believers called, they are beloved in God the Father. I have to be reminded of this regularly. Of the amazing and steadfast love of God if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he calls you his beloved. His beloved. You know, sometimes we will talk about the love of God and we kind of use it in sort of this, this generic sense. Oh, well, God loves everyone. Yeah and no. Now, it's true. God is love. And in his love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But God's love is set upon his people in a way that it is not set upon those who are not his people. And if you today are a follower of Jesus Christ, please hear this. The God of heaven delights in you and calls you his beloved. And sometimes we are in danger when we, when we throw out this idea kind of falsely of, oh, well, God loves everyone then that becomes a, since God's so loving, he doesn't really care what I do because he loves me so much. That's false. 
But we also, on the flip side of that, um, sometimes as believers can, can have this idea of the fact that, yeah, well, so God kind of tolerates me. And if I work hard enough, maybe he'll love me. But if I don't work hard enough or do the right things, then maybe he won't love me. And that's false. If you are called, then you are beloved. And if you are called and beloved, then Jude says there's one more thing that he wants to establish right at the beginning of this letter because it is foundational to what he's going to talk about. As he says, to those who are called and beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, he uses here the same word as the Apostle Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 4 when he talks about the fact that those who are in Christ, those who are believers, have been born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What he's saying here, as he uses this word kept, which means uh, to be watched over, to be secure, to be guarded. He's talking here to those who are truly followers of Jesus Christ. He's saying, not only has God called you, not only are you his beloved, but you are being kept firm. This is what theologians call the perseverance of the saints. That is that those who truly are believers will persevere in the power and enablement of the Lord Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit, and they will take a hold of the fullness of salvation and when they stand in the presence of their holy God, that those who are His are guarded by Him and that as the Good Shepherd, He will not lose one of his sheep. Now, Jude wants to be very careful that we understand this. And so he starts this letter by reminding his readers of their identity. If you are in Christ, then this is true about you. Because now he's going to go on. He's going to tackle some of the issues that have been seeping in and creeping into the church. And he's going to talk about some people throughout this letter, especially where we'll look next week, in, 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 in a tough way. And he wants to remind the believers there that he's writing to, even though there's challenges, even though there's stuff going on, even though there's stuff you've really got to be on guard against, you need not fear. You need not fear. Instead, remember who you are in Christ. And when you live out of that identity in Christ, then you are firm and secure. One of the great challenges we face in the Christian life is that we forget who we are and whose we are. And we grow exhausted and discouraged and weary and we have a spiritual enemy, the devil, who likes to whisper in our ears, you're no good. You messed up again. God can never use you. And so many of us are weak and weary because we have forgotten that when we came to Christ, it was because we were called. That because we are in Christ, we are now beloved. And God will not withdraw His love from His people and that He who began 
a good work in us will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, says Philippians 1.6. So Jude starts there. And then he wants us to know, as he prays for them, may, grace, uh, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So he kind of wishes them, he, he, he pray, says, this is what I'm praying for you. It's kind of interesting he uses mercy and peace and love because all through the New Testament we see grace and peace and love. And actually, this is because of something he's going to unveil for us in a moment. There were people who were coming in who were taking the whole idea of grace and they were perverting it. They were distorting it. So it says, I'm praying something different for you, so there's no confusion here. Praying for mercy for you. I'm praying for peace, and I'm praying for love. And as the letter unfolds, he's going to expose the fact that this is the kind of attitude, this is the kind of demeanor, this is the kind of heart that you need to have towards even those who are seeking to lead astray. True believers, he goes on, are to be earnest in contending for the faith. So, so having laid that foundation, hey, this is who I'm writing to. This is what you need to remember about who you are in Christ. He says, now let's get down to business. And he says, beloved, this is verse 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so he starts here as he kind of gets into the meat of his letter and says, here's the thing, I was planning on writing a different letter. I wanted to write to you about the greatness of the salvation in Christ that we share. But something has happened that has compelled me by the Holy Spirit to write to you about an urgent issue. And this urgent issue, just like those mosquitoes getting inside the net, is the fact that there is something that is creeping constantly into the church and he gives this instruction he says that I'm writing instead appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints this is often misunderstood Jude here is not telling us, wage war against those awful sinners out there in the world. It's not what this is saying. It's not saying, take up arms, take up your Bibles, and hit everybody over the head that you possibly can as you move through your week. That's not what contending for the faith is about. This, this word contend, it, it, it has to do with struggling. It is about a deliberate, disciplined, and diligent effort. And, and it was often associated with, with sports and, and, and games and athletics and tournaments. In fact, we still use it occasionally today. You might hear a uh, sports announcer uh, as a race is about to begin. Contenders, take your marks. And he's saying, 
I'm writing appealing to you to contend, to diligently struggle on behalf of. And then he goes and explains what it is. So we are to contend, to struggle intentionally, disciplined for the faith. Now, he's not saying here, contend for faith. Oftentimes, when we talk about faith, we're kind of talking about something that, that is kind of subjective. You know, we might say to some, oh, you know, I know you're going through a hard time right now, but just have faith. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, contend for the definite article, faith. He's talking about the body of truth and doctrine that is the gospel that is recorded for us in the 66 inspired books of the Bible. He's talking about contending, struggling diligently to guard and do battle for sound doctrine. For the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. And so this faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. And so he's clear on this as well. We're not only to to contend for the faith, but it is the faith that was once for all time. It's not something that needs updating. It's not something that we have to kind of, oh, well, let's change this a little bit so we can make it more relevant. It's not something where it's like, well, this is going on in the news, and, and, and this is what the Bible says, and so let's look at what's going on in the news so that we can understand how we are to, 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 to understand the Bible. No. He's saying, once for all time, given to the saints. And the saints that he's talking about here are the believing community of the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, this are scriptures that come through the apostles and the prophets, inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. This is God's inspired, breathed out word, but it was delivered to the saints. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're one of them. This belongs to you, and you are to guard it and contend for it. And he explains the reason why this is so important. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So he's saying, before you get panicked over this, be aware of the fact that within the church at large, there are those who have crept in, and, and they have often crept in in such a way that you didn't realize who they were beforehand. Jesus talks about this, about the fact that there will be wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul talks about this. And and he's saying, don't be panicked about this. Don't be surprised about this. Don't be surprised that there will be some people who will come into the church and they will bring with them the values, philosophies, and principles of the anything-goes culture of the world. And through living them out, 
and at times trying to instruct others to live those out, they will bring distortion to the truth. He says it's been foretold. You ought not to be surprised by this. Don't panic over it. It's not like God is kind of like, oh no, what am I going to do? This was foretold. And so is their condemnation. But he explains that there are three characteristics of these people amongst uh, who have crept in, those who have come in from the outside that we must be on guard against. And we're going to spend a lot more time talking about them in verses 5 through 16 next week when we consider kind of the anatomy of false teaching. But here he introduces it and he says that these people are ungodly people. First of all, they're ungodly. That is that they are uninterested in and their lives reflect the opposite of the character of God. Now, sadly, we don't talk a whole lot about godliness in the church these days. We, we often think of it as being kind of an old-fashioned thing, but not at all. Again, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to live a godly life in Christ. Well, what does that mean? It means that the character, the attributes, the things that are true about our God, for example, mercy and, and love and peace and many others, are uh, that we reflect those things. And what Jude is saying is one of the ways that we can recognize those who are creeping in is that their lives do not reflect the character of God, but rather the opposite. And while none of us have arrived True believers are pursuing and are in increasing measure being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Whereas those who are false continue in ungodliness and even celebrate their ungodliness. More than that, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Pastor Matt was talking in the last couple of weeks about cheap grace. And these are the people who, who are, oh, isn't grace wonderful? We're so thankful for the grace of God, and they use it like a whole pass. Oh, oh, oh don't judge me for that. You know, we're all, we're all just kind of, no, there's no pursuit of holiness. There's no recognition that, that the repentance is a hallmark of the Christian life. That grace always leads us to repentance. And having led us to repentance produces joy as our fellowship with the Father is restored. That these pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Specifically the issue in their day, and, and, and certainly we see it all around us, is that this ungodliness, this perversion of grace is a permissiveness. It's anything goes. And in particular, the issue there was sexual immorality that was rampant. And they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that may seem strange to us, especially since we're talking about inside the church here. And it's like, well, well, they've not exactly hidden if they're saying, I don't believe in Jesus. 
No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying with their lips they don't profess that they believe. These are the people who say, oh yeah, I love Jesus. But they reject his authority, his lordship, his mastery over their lives. A number of years ago now, there was some debate within churches over whether or not it's possible to have Jesus as your Savior without having him as Lord. And while there were debates about this in the churches, there was no debate in Scripture. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be under his lordship. Jesus himself said, why do you call me Lord and, 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 and don't do what I say? And these are people who were professing one thing with their mouths, but their lives were in rebellion to the living God. Contending for the faith then, this instruction that he gives has to do with the disciplined and diligent guarding of two different aspects. First of all, of doctrinal purity. Of doctrinal purity. Throughout the history of the church, whenever there has been error that has threatened to come in, or confusion that people have tried to bring in, the church has always gone back to the Scriptures to make sure that it is grounded and founded on the Word of God. And one of the tools that they have used through the history of the church has been some of the confessions and creeds that have developed to help to disciple believers to recognize truth from error. And these creeds, these confessions, are not inspired. Uh, they are only as helpful as, uh, as much as they lead us back to the truth of Scripture. And yet, when we are to be on guard, to be doctrinally pure, it is helpful for us to understand the nuance of truth, because very seldom does error come in waving a flag. It usually comes in over details and distortions. There are some within uh, the, the, the kind of militant homosexual community who are saying that the, the Bible has been distorted and certain words were changed in the 1500s to mean different things. And they sound very impressive and they're all over YouTube and they have no clue what they're talking about. They heard somebody say it and then they heard somebody else say it and they heard somebody else say it and there's no basis. But they sound very persuasive. Through the history of the church, there have been a number of creeds. One of them, for example, the Nicene Creed. It's maybe a little small for some of you to see, but just to move through it quickly, I wish we had the time to go into detail on each wonderful statement here, but it, it declares, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same 
essence as the Father. What do you think that they were trying to guard against? Trying to guard against false teachings that had Jesus as being something less than truly God. Through Him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human in the next slide. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son and and with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, that means universal, not big C Catholic. We believe in one holy and universal and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism For the forgiveness of sins, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. And you know, throughout the early church, it was like, you say you're a true believer. Do you believe this? Because if you color outside of the lines on this, we don't have fellowship with you. We don't, because we don't mess around on who Jesus is. Oh, well, to me, Jesus is, he's so wonderful. I love my Jesus. I don't know who your Jesus is, but I love... That's garbage. And the church of Jesus Christ has always said, we have no room for that. There is one revealed truth. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we stand firm on the truth. We contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And contending for the faith, I love what author Trevin Wax says, and he speaks about what he calls the thrill of orthodoxy. He says, the church faces her biggest challenge, not when new and false ideas start to rise up, but when we as believers find that old truths cease to captivate us. He goes on to warn, we're in danger of drifting from orthodoxy, that is from truth, when we disregard or lose interest in the details of doctrine. We're in danger of drifting from orthodoxy when we begin to insist that we need to update our teaching so that our faith doesn't become outdated or irrelevant. We're in danger of drifting from orthodoxy when we get bored with ancient truth. Because we live in a world that has this idea that tries to convince us that new and updated is always better. But that is simply not true. And so he suggests that the best way to avoid new errors is to love old truths. The issue here in Jude's day was not only that they needed to contend for the purity of doctrine, but also that they needed to contend for the faith in a disciplined and diligent manner, guarding guarding moral and practical purity as well. We'll see more about that next week. But it's the idea of the fact that when we stand firm on truth, 
that our lives are transformed in, in increasing measure into the pure, godly attitude of Christ. And so how do we, who are followers of Jesus Christ, how do we practically start to contend for the faith in our day? How do we start to put some of this into practice? How do we respond when it seems like the anything-goes culture starts to creep into the church? First, we need to know that we must contend. Sounds pretty straightforward, but the reality is that much of the church of Jesus Christ in the Western world has been asleep at the wheel. We've lost interest in doctrine. We have forgotten that we are called to pursue godliness. We kind of are fluffy on what we believe. I wonder if I were to have a conversation with you and were to ask you to share with me a little bit about your understanding of the Trinity. Would you feel comfortable? If I made it easier and said, tell me about Jesus, would you be able to do that? We need to understand that we must contend. And a part of that contending is not only pursuing godliness, not only being concerned about the details, but also having a commitment to the body of Christ that is the church. Because according to Ephesians chapter 4, God has gifted every believer with spiritual gifts that are given to build up the church so that all of us grow in maturity so that none of us are tossed around by every wind of false teaching. Here's the problem that I see across much of the church in our land. We have rendered ourselves irrelevant in the eyes of much of the world and worse in the eyes of many of our children because they don't see a pursuit of godliness because they don't see that we really have any particular concern for the truth of truth. And because church, rather than being something that we are committed to in the building up of the body, is something that if it fits in, well, all well and good, but if it doesn't, then there's plenty of other things to occupy my time. Friends, we must contend To contend, we must know and love Scripture and study the Scriptures deeply like Bereans. That's why I said, if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, whether it be a physical one or on your phone, this week, bring it next week. Do you know what Bereans did? They checked everything that the Apostle Paul had to say to make sure that he was speaking truth from Scripture. We have great pastors here at this church. But you know what? If the Apostle Paul should be checked when he preaches, so should Pastor Rich and Pastor Matt and Pastor Joseph and definitely me. We need to be those who love and get into the Word. 
we must contend on behalf of our children and, and be prayerful and strategic in our intentionality of helping them contend. I'm going to step on some feet here. There was a time when our kids were five years old, we just put them on the school bus and we send them off to school because that's what you do. Folks, whether it be in the public school or even sadly today in many Christian schools, we can't do that anymore with a good conscience. We have to have a prayerful plan and seek the Lord. How are we going to help them to contend for the faith when we send them eight hours a day into an environment that is discipling them away from truth? And I'm sorry, but an hour on Sunday morning in Sunday school or with Pastor Matt in, in, in youth ministry is not sufficient. If you're a parent or a grandparent, help your children contend for the faith. Because the voice that they're hearing from their friends, from the media, and yes, from their teachers at school are often resounding in their ears and their hearts far louder than we realize. We have a responsibility to help them contend. What's more, we must be careful not to confuse the gospel implications and applications with the gospel itself. There's all sorts of things, important, valuable discussions to have in our world. This past year, there's been a lot of things going on in our nation, and they have raised some important and necessary questions, but they are not the gospel. Does the church need to be wrestling through matters related to race? Yes, but it's not the gospel. In the past, does the church need to wrestle through how do we serve the community? How do we feed the, the, uh, the hungry? How do, we, ha, how do we help look after the sick? Yes, they, they wrestle with that. And one branch of the church, many mainline denominations went, this is what we need to put all of our energy into doing. And do you know where they are today? They've departed from the gospel. It's not that those things aren't important. They are very important, but they are applications of the gospel, not the gospel itself. We have to be on guard. We have to engage in those difficult things. We have to live out practically the gospel. But we start from the scripture. We don't start from whatever's going on in culture and try to read it into the scripture. And finally, what this book of Jude over these next few weeks we're going to see has at its very heart is the fact that with mercy and with peace and in love, we are to contend on behalf of others within the body. Jude is going to talk in terms of the fact that it is our task, those of us who are in Christ, to snatch others from the flames. When we see people in danger of destruction because they are deceived as to what the gospel is, even though they're in our midst, we don't just say, oh, well, you know, I won't go to their small group. Or we won't just say, oh, well, you know, uh, I, I don't want to judge them. We get in there. We wrestle with love. We work hard with mercy. We come alongside them with peace. And we plead with them to look to the pure and perfect and beautiful Jesus who needs no distortion to make him appealing.
what it looks like to contend for the faith. The problem is, contending takes effort. And somewhere along the line, much of the church has come to think that we don't really have to put in too much or break too much of a sweat or go too much out of our comfort zone. Brothers and sisters, thanks be to God, we have a Savior who has qualified us, who has done the work on our behalf, that we might be saved. But that doesn't mean that we don't dig deeply into His Word and earnestly contend for the faith. Friends, I've spoken here to the audience that Jude has spoken to, which is to those who he would classify as true believers, called, beloved, and kept. It may be that you're here this morning and you're still checking this Christianity thing out, and you're like, well, this doesn't really kind of hit where I am. I don't really get... It's okay. I want you to know we are so thankful that you are here. We want to encourage you to come back and to keep on listening and and learning and asking questions. Here's the thing. You will encounter along the way the kind of people that Jude is talking about, that there are some counterfeit Christians. I would plead with you, don't let counterfeit Christians be an excuse for not looking into who the real Jesus is. What do we do when we face the reality that there are things, values, ideas, and principles from our anything-goes culture that get carried into the church? Well, we stand firm. We contend for the faith. And with mercy and peace, and love. We work hard together to stand for truth because before we can do a whole lot in showing a world that the church is different, we first have to be a church that's different. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, this is tough and challenging in so many ways. And yet we thank you that you are good and faithful and merciful God, are a God of truth. And you have not left us to try to figure out what that truth is or to come up with answers or ideas on our own, but you have made yourself known to us. You have given us your perfect, complete and holy and sufficient word. I pray that we would be a church made up of individuals and together as a body who love sound doctrine and who live it out in such a way as to pursue godliness for your glory. Lord, I don't know of any particular errors here in our body, but I do know that we have an enemy who loves to do anything he can to infiltrate the body. 
I pray that you would help us to stand firm and to engage always with mercy and with peace and with love for the glory of your great name and for the fame of Jesus in the church and in this world in which you have set us. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.